Amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, good morning. How are we doing? <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, if you're here with us for the first time, know that we're so glad you're here today. Um, we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians for the past 10 weeks now, and we are, we've officially made it to the middle of the letter. Uh, however, the second half of this letter, uh, we're going to be taking bigger uh, bites out of this text um, and finish this book by the end of May. And then we're going to jump back in, uh, in the second half of Exodus this summer that we started last summer. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire passage uh, before we start here, okay? Starting in verse 2. This is what Paul said. He says, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I, still, I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, uh, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see that what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, and also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And, uh, and besides our comfort, our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you, uh, refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus was, has proved, uh, proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Okay, so our passage that we just read, it gives insight, uh, it gives more insight to Paul's reasoning as to why he wrote uh, this last letter to the Corinthian church. If you remember, I'll kind of catch us all up to speed today. This letter, uh, it's called 2 Corinthians, although it's actually Paul's fourth letter uh, to this church. Uh, and the third letter that, that we don't actually have, uh, it's, it's, it was earlier referenced, this third letter was earlier referenced and known as a severe and tearful letter. Uh, and that letter that he referenced comes back up in our text today. Uh, and y'all remember this Corinthian church, it was uh, a messy church full of messy people and in a very messy city. And so, uh, as Paul so kinded, uh, kindly reminded them up to this point, uh, although they were messy and broken, like broken and chipped clay pots, like he said back in chapter 4, uh, they hold an incredible treasure in Jesus Christ. And so far in this letter, Paul has reminded them of their identity, uh, both who they are and whose they are. 
uh, that they've been made new, that they're ambassadors for Christ, that this world is not their home, that they live for a different world, that they're being transformed and they're being renewed by the Spirit of God. They have the light of the gospel. These are all things that we've seen so far in 2 Corinthians. I mean, there's so many incredible truths about who we are and whose we are and what God has called Christians to do. And the one truth from chapter 5 that I want to expound on today in chapter 7 is that we as followers of Christ are ministers of reconciliation. That God uses us as broken and messy people, as chipped and cracked clay pots to help bring reconciliation to our world and to those around us. Our ministry is a reconciling ministry. I know we talked about this a few weeks ago uh, in chapter 5, that when something is reconciled, it takes two opposing things uh, and brings them back together into unity and harmony. You know, that term uh, reconcile is often used as an accounting term, like to reconcile a budget or when two kids, you know, when they get into an argument uh, or friends, when they, or maybe a husband or a wife uh, get into an argument or a disagreement, they need to come back together and reconcile. And so being a minister of reconciliation, that fancy phrase that Paul uses, uh, is said to be used by God to help reconcile uh, the broken world back to God, Okay. And it's first and foremost done through the message of reconciliation, as he mentions back in chapter 5. Uh, it's, it's done, just to say it again a different way, it's done primarily through the message of the good news of the gospel. Uh, because as we know and we see so clearly, our world is broken. And the most broken thing about our world is that because of sin and evil, God and humanity's relationship is in opposition with each other. Uh, and we humans, we, we all, the entire world needs to be reconciled back to God. And the good news of Jesus Christ, why Jesus is such a big deal, is because through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, through this message, this great message called the gospel, uh, this reconciliation with God and man and, and us is made possible. And the gospel is our message of reconciliation. But as we know, by looking at the world, there are many various byproducts of this, uh, knowing that many other things in our world are broken, like relationships are broken. Marriages and families are broken. Work is broken. Things in our culture is broken with so much disharmony, like racial and ethnic disharmony, educational disharmony, economic and political disharmony, disharmony on teams with roommates, in churches, in friendships. I mean, we could go on and on about the disharmony in the world. I mean, just this week, you know, I got a notification on my phone about an Amber Alert for a girl in Pasco County that was kidnapped. Uh, And when I saw it, it deeply grieved me. I mean, praise the Lord, she was found, uh, but we grieve things like this. I mean, there was a shooting at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis, uh, and we grieve things like this. And also, I mean, the tragedy of Dante Wright and everything that surrounds it, all of this, we grieve, uh, we grieve and mourn all of it. All of this is heartbreaking. I mean, we say all the time here at New City Church that our world is broken, and we grieve it, and we mourn it, and we long for the day that God will make all things new. But in this broken world, God has made us as followers of Christ, to be ministers of reconciliation, to both proclaim and to display the gospel to our broken world. And it's not always going to be perfect, uh, but we continue to make strides. And this idea of being a minister of reconciliation, it plays out in so many ways. Uh, Like we said, we proclaim the gospel as our primary means of reconciling God back to uh, us humans, uh, but it also plays out in our everyday life. Like in advocating for others. Uh, Maybe through helping the poor or through adoption or foster care or through helping a single mom or a widow or a refugee or possibly uh, simply just giving a listening ear to a hurting and a grieving soul. 
there's probably a thousand different ways to be ministers of reconciliation by both proclaiming the gospel and displaying the gospel. But significantly in our passage today, we see Paul bring up something that is very hard, uh, but much needed. Uh, We see Paul continue to fight for the Corinthian church to be reconciled back into an open and a healthy relationship back with Paul, uh, urging them to reconcile with Paul and also with the Lord uh, in the way in which God uses Paul, the person who wrote this letter, to be a minister of reconciliation to the Corinthian church was that he led them to repentance. Paul saw a form of brokenness in the church, and Paul addressed it, and God used it to bring them back to the Lord, which, as we said, is often very hard, but it's much needed. Because uh, let's just be real with ourselves here. It's often way easier to just uh, not get our hands dirty and avoid conflict and avoid any form of brokenness. And we also know uh, when we do enter into it and conflict and brokenness is restored and reconciled, it can lead to great joy in thanksgiving, which leads us to our main idea today. Uh, Being a minister of reconciliation comes with both joy and grief. Again, when we enter into brokenness, it comes with a double-edged sword. I mean, just think of this. Uh, like, just think of this like being an army medic, maybe. You know, if an army medic is going to save a life, uh, they're likely going to get blood on their hands and quite possibly maybe even stain their clothes. But in the process, they're helping a fellow soldier and possibly saving that soldier's life. Uh, if they don't want to get blood on their hands, it'll certainly stay uh, stain-free and clean, but, but they'll never do what they're called to do as an army medic. Uh, and for us as Christians, who are called to be ministers of reconciliation to the world uh, in our church and in the lives around us by both declaring and displaying the gospel, as we do this, we need to know that it comes with tough territory. Being a minister of reconciliation will, will come with grief and sorrow and discouragement and low days and low weeks. We also need to know that being a minister of reconciliation, reconciliation comes with great highs and immense satisfaction. Just like the satisfaction an army medic has when they know that they've saved a life. And so if, if, if we don't help those, uh, theoretically speaking, who need a medic, we won't get blood on our hands, right? But we'll also never experience the joy of helping those who desperately need a medic. Today we're going to walk through chapter 7, a few verses at a time. Uh, We'll see both Paul's low points and high points in this part of his ministry. You know, Paul, he had low lows, and he also had high highs all throughout his ministry, and often simultaneously all at the same time. And on the back half, towards the end of chapter 7, we'll dive a little bit deeper into a few verses that Paul touches on uh, that I think will be helpful for us today. So look again, starting in verses 2 to 4. I'm going to read just these few verses again. He says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Again, we see Paul here uh, pleading with this church as we've seen through this letter. Uh, For them to make room, he says, in their hearts for them, as he said in verse 2. To open up to them, uh, saying they haven't done any wrong. Paul's done nothing wrong. 
And then he affirms his love and care for them, saying he's urging them uh, to do this in love. He says uh, he, has, he has great pride in them, that he's, uh, he's filled, uh, that, that he's filled with comfort, that in his affliction he's overflowing with joy. Uh, but what I want to point out is that he says he's doing this with great boldness. That's what he said in verse 4. Because apparently there was some friction in their relationship. And Paul steps into the friction and he addresses it. And why does he do that? Because he loves them. Which leads us to see very directly from Paul's example that being a minister of reconciliation, it doesn't run from conflict and friction. It steps into it, which is often hard and sometimes requires boldness. But notice how much Paul affirms his love for them. In the process, as he's seeking to reconcile, he's not blaming them. He's not putting them down. No, he affirms his love for them. Uh, he lets him know he cares for them, that he has great pride in them. I mean, Paul has, he has invested his life in them. He has a relationship with them. He knows them. He's laid deposits of love and trust in their life, which we need to know is a crucial part of this entire formula. Paul didn't come in without any uh, invested relational deposits of trust to set them straight. No, not at all. He knew them like a family, and he was lovingly bold. He was burdened for this Corinthian church. And his response, out of love, was to step in and seek reconciliation. Again, we see Paul, uh, both Paul's joy uh, and pride in them while yet also grieved by the fracture and brokenness in their relationship. Which leads me to say, being a bold minister of reconciliation in a person's life requires deposits of love and trust. And so may we be slow and patient in boldness if we haven't first displayed love and care. While at the same time, may we not withhold loving boldness as a means for reconciliation when needed. Being a minister of reconciliation, as Paul models, walks the tightrope of gentle and loving and caring boldness, directness, and forthrightness in areas of conflict and tension. And look what he says next in verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And so Paul here is referencing the same incidents he mentioned back in chapter 2. Uh, you know, back in chapter 2, Paul said he wasn't at rest because he couldn't find his friend Titus. Uh, and so they went on to Macedonia to find him. Uh, and now here in chapter 7, verse 5, he shows this it was a very difficult and it was a challenging time for him. Showing that they were tired and afflicted and fearful and fighting without, as he says. Paul was concerned for his friend Titus, and so he goes into Macedonia to find him, and when he gets there, he walks into a Macedonian mess <laughs> where a lot of fighting and quarreling occurred. I mean, possibly with both believers and unbelievers. And apparently at every turn in Macedonia, Paul was faced with some sort of conflict. I mean, the guy, he couldn't catch a break. In fact, some have said that Paul was likely depressed at this point, uh, which as we know is not uncommon, uh, including for those who serve the Lord. You know, I, I've been reading several short biographies recently, and what uh, many of these biographies have shown are that many of the great pastors, preachers, missionaries, and theologians that have gone before us, that many of them battled depression. They had high highs in their ministry, but they also had low lows. You know, Charles, the great Charles Spurgeon, 
He battled depression his entire ministry. John Henry struggled with it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he would hide away for days because of it. Many have said that depression is the common cold of the soul and that sooner or later, most people will catch it. And maybe you or someone you know has battled this in some way. And you know what's often so strangely encouraging? It's knowing that others often go through these same struggles uh, that you or others may have. It helps us to remember that we're not alone. Because as we see the great Apostle Paul himself, he also battled this. Look again what he says in verse 6. Saying, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul said they were downcast. I mean, one translation uh, said he was depressed. Others say he was discouraged or lowly. But the point is, the great Apostle Paul, his soul was down and out, and he was at a low point in his ministry. But let's not miss what surrounds it. Look what it says. Again, I'm going to read it again. It says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. He said, But God comforts. God comforts the downcast. God comforts the discouraged and grieved. And how did God encourage Paul this time? Well, by the coming of his friend Titus. God sent Paul a friend. You know, something I've been praying for our church for a long time is that we would all make good friends. You know, we all need people in our life to encourage us when we're downcast, uh, when when our lows are low. It may not always be how we want it to be or what we'd expect it to be or when we'd like it to happen, but I'll say this as much as I can on a Sunday. Y'all, we need each other. We need friendships in our lives. We need community around us to lift us up and to point us to Jesus. We don't, uh, we don't want to be a friendly, we don't only want to be a friendly church. No, we want to be a church made up of friends that mourn and grieve with each other and encourage each other when we're down. And to take this a step further, we're not just friends here at New City Church. No, we are a family. I reference uh, each of you, our congregation, in my preaching uh, often and intentionally as my brothers and sisters because I want you to know and remember and all of us to remember that we are a family. I genuinely see each of you that call New City Church home as part of my family, like we are brothers and sisters. We're not just a church, a community. We're not just friends. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. And what does a family do? A family provides a safe space. We cry with each other. We laugh with each other. We celebrate with each other. We forgive each other. And we encourage each other when we're down. Both the joy and the grief of Paul's ministry came from thinking of this Corinthian church like a family. But the joy that we see here is that his friends, his brothers in the Lord, his brother Titus, his friend Titus, showed up. Again, God encouraged Paul by the coming of Titus. Look what he says next in verse 7. He says, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced some more. He wasn't only encouraged by Titus just showing up, but also by the report that Titus brought with him. God encouraged Paul by showing him the fruit of his labor, by hearing that this church that he labored over and loved dearly and agonized over, uh, this family has returned their love and care back to him. In essence, uh, this Corinthian church, they re-embraced Paul. They longed and mourned for Paul. They had a zealous love for Paul. And the report, this report that he heard encouraged him. It brought him joy in the middle of his grief. 
And so a simple question for each of us is, uh, who can you encourage today? Who can you just be a good friend for today? Who can you give a simple encouragement to this week and possibly lift their discouraged spirit? And as we've seen Titus, as well as Paul, they were both ministers of reconciliation. Because Titus, he encouraged Paul. And Titus' presence and report helped to bring reconciliation to Paul's weary soul. And so may we be a people, New City Church, that embrace the wounded, the wandering, and the weary and be ministers of reconciliation to revive and restore their drooping spirits. May we not just be a nice, may we not just be nice to each other, but may we be a family for each other. And look what Paul says next in verse 8. It says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. So here we see Paul mention that third letter again, uh, that painful letter that he sent. And Paul said he didn't regret sending it. Uh, so he, yes, he said he, re- he regretted it for a time, knowing that it grieved them, but not anymore, because it led the church to repent and to respond well and to change their direction. Paul addressed the issue at hand, and he addressed it with boldness, and by addressing it head on, it helped bring reconciliation, leading them to repentance. And what I want to point out here is that the grief that they experienced from the letter, Paul says it was a godly grief, because it led them to repentance. And you know, this, uh, this idea he brings up about godly grief uh, is something we're just going to kind of sit here and camp out on for a second. Uh, we don't often think of grief as a good thing. I mean, good grief, right? When someone says that, they're typically not happy and they're typically not elated with joy. Uh, we, what we often call, maybe rephrase this idea is conviction. Maybe that's what we, maybe, maybe how we think of this, being convicted by the Holy Spirit. There's a sense of sorrow or remorse or grief over our sin, things that we've done wrong. And in verse 10, he expands on this idea of godly grief. He says, look what he says in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so he's drawing a distinction between godly grief and worldly grief. And so one is good and the other is not. Uh, One leads to salvation, he says, and the other produces death. And we need to ask, well, what's the difference? Uh, what's godly grief and what's the difference in godly grief and worldly grief? And I think we kind of understand and we feel this tension here. We, we know there's a distinction. Uh, for example, when someone says they're sorry, uh, it's like, are, are you really saying you're sorry or, or like, are you really sorry? Like, are you just saying it or like, are you actually sorry? Like one is like, a, I'm sorry I got caught and I'm sorry I got you I'm, I'm, and I'm saying I'm sorry to get you off my back. And the other is like a genuine sorrow. But the distinction between godly grief and worldly grief, it's more than that. It's more than just saying sorry. He said in verse 10, godly grief produces repentance. It produces a change in direction. The first step towards God is also the first step away from sin. That's repentance. Repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry or feeling sorry. When we we repent, we are turning away from our sin and we're turning towards God. It's one step, like in its one turn. But you're doing, doing two things at the same time. 
You know, sin is in one direction and God is in the complete opposite. And so when we repent and turn to God, you're also turning away from sin. That's what repentance is. And this godly grief that Paul speaks of, it leads to repentance, where worldly grief does not. Worldly grief is still turned towards sin. And sin, as the Bible says and tells us, it produces death. And then Paul, he takes this further in verse 11. He shows uh, what more godly grief produces with repentance. Look what it says. For see uh, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, uh, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. We see here, godly grief, it produces earnestness and an eagerness to, to clear yourselves and then to give uh, five what's. That's what he, he gives five what's, showing emphasis, saying uh, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. In short, like, just to say this again, there was like a zeal and a passion to stop doing what they were doing and to change direction. That's what godly grief or godly sorrow produces. It's not just being sorry or being sad about what you've done, but it's at, but it actually uh, being changed and different. It leads to repentance. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're convicted of your sin. Maybe there's something in your life. Maybe like maybe something you've done or a continual ongoing sinful habit, and you're convicted over it and you're grieved by it. Uh, and to that we say, praise God. Let that conviction and grief lead you to repentance and to turn away from your sin, and, but then yet run towards God. Put it behind you and run. That conviction is a good thing. Let God use it to transform you. Or maybe on the other side, you feel sorrow or sadness or grief over something you've done, but yet it's for a different reason. Which Paul here, again, he calls it worldly grief. And so on the opposite side, what's worldly grief? Well, it shows remorse or sorrow, but it doesn't change direction. In essence, it's sad about the consequences or how it affects someone or how maybe how it affects you. Like you're sorry because you got caught, maybe. Or sorry because now you're embarrassed or because you lost the world's approval. And you know that being sorry or saying you're sorry is a, a way to regain approval. And Paul says this worldly grief, it produces death. It leads to death. And this worldly grief can oftentimes be bitter and intense, maybe even scary or fearful sometimes. It may be even confusing because it may even feel similar to godly grief, but it's not. You know, what's, you know why it's not the same? Because the motivations are different. Godly grief sees God and our sin at the same time. And when we see the holiness of God in the tragedy of our sin, we grieve. We do as Isaiah did and say, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. But then we turn away from our wicked sin and we run towards our holy God who lovingly embraces us. But that bitter and often fearful worldly grief doesn't look at God, rather it looks at yourself or ourself. Instead of God being at the center focus, we become the center focus. We look at what we did wrong and look at how it affected us and we grieve it because now we're embarrassed or because we've lost respect or lost an opportunity or trust. 
As Pastor Kent Hughes, he was helpful. He said, worldly grief is a grief for oneself, centered on self, not grief for sin against God. It grieves uh, over its own consequences, the embarrassment. It focuses on its own hurt and its self-pitying. Where godly grief is effective and produces transformation in a person's life. Because godly grief recognizes the offense that it is to God. That the sin in our life has offended God. And the Holy Spirit has convicted us over it and it leads us to a life to life change. Godly grief takes their sorrow and conviction and remorse that we experience from our wrongdoing and it takes it to the foot of the cross. And it lays it down at the feet of the man of sorrows in Jesus Christ. And the godly grief we see Jesus, and in this godly grief we see Jesus in his holiness and splendor and righteousness and grandness. We see him take our sin upon himself for us at the cross and pay for it in full. And then we no longer sit in our sorrow and grief, but rather we've been set free from it. We're completely turned away from it and we run away without regret. Godly grief experiences sorrow and conviction, but it does not stay there. It turns away from our sin and it runs in freedom to the God who made us as completely free, as completely forgiven, and as completely clean and new. This godly grief, as we said, it's effective. It moves us. It motivates us. And it's one of the first steps in transformation. It frees us because uh, if we're not free, we can't be changed and transformed. Because nothing that is still in bondage under the chains of guilt has the ability and power to find Holy Spirit-empowered transformation. Because you know where our enemy wants us to stay? Our enemy wants us to stay in the bondage of guilt and worldly sorrow uh, that has no lasting freeing power, and it's under the chains of the approval of the world. Satan wants us, wants to keep us from enjoying our full freedom that is found in laying down our grief at Jesus' feet. It is found in our freedom at the cross. Brothers and sisters, if you do not know this freedom that is found at the cross, I want you to know that it is found by trusting in Jesus Christ. And I urge you, trust in Jesus today. Know this in the process. Trusting in Jesus, it does not free us of grief and sorrow and remorse. No. Trusting in Jesus gives us a place to take it, to lay it down, and to walk in freedom. Knowing it's not our burden. No, it is now Jesus' burden that he took to the cross. New City Church, what conviction have you come in with today? What sorrow or grief are you experiencing, maybe over your sin or maybe over the brokenness of the world? Whatever it may be, I want to call you to come and bring it to the foot of the cross because there is where God begins to make all things new. At the foot of the cross, you will find both grief and joy. And God sits with us in our grief. He doesn't hurry us along. No, he patiently stays with us. But yet at that same cross, Jesus revives us and restores us as he sits with us and he he turns our mourning into laughter. Because at the cross, Jesus, the greatest minister of reconciliation this world has ever had, is full of both joy and grief. He grieves our sin. He grieves the world's brokenness. And yet he restores us back into joy, into his overwhelming, loving embrace. This is what God does. 
He takes the wounded and the wandering and the weary. He provides rest, rest, restoration, and revival. And then he unleashes us back into his mission as a transformed and a changed person. This is the continual cycle of gospel-centered transformation. Sinclair Ferguson reminded me uh, this week that it's often said that God pains us to bless us. And he grieves us to transform us. And so what godly grief are you experiencing? What conviction is God bringing you to that God may be using to transform you? And will you bring, maybe you would bring this up in your group this week. Will you do that? If you're not sure whether you're experiencing godly grief or worldly grief, let me just encourage you to look to Jesus, to look towards the holiness of God. Because when we see his true holiness, the only proper response is to grieve your sin and say, woe is me, and then be changed by God's grace, leading you into joy. Again, reconciliation is full of both grief and joy. Look what Paul says next in verse 12. It says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So Paul here, uh, he reminds them of his motives again. Uh, he didn't write the letter for him, and he also didn't uh, do it for the one who did the wrong. No, he says he did it for God. He did it as a reminder that all of their actions are seen in the sight of God. You know, Paul wrote the, the letter, uh, Paul wrote the letters as a minister of reconciliation to see their relationship with God restored and strengthened. There's something significant here that I want to point out, and it's back at this idea of how God uses us to be ministers of reconciliation. Because without a doubt, God used Paul to minister to the Corinthian church, leading them to repentance, which for us here today, we may, we may see uh, God wants to do the same thing with us. God wants to use us to help reconcile the world back to God. But let me be just clear for a second. Uh, this is not an excuse to be mean, to, to heap guilt on people thinking that, that it will lead them to repentance because uh, let's be honest, it's, just, it's often easier to see and call out someone else's sin and not our own. And the reason we often heap guilt on others or desire to do that is because we've been wronged and oftentimes we've, uh, we want some sort of revenge and so we see their sin, we call it out and confront it. But that's not what Paul did. Paul's motives were different. Paul didn't step into this conflict intention to defend himself or to put down the Corinthian church. No, he did it to be a minister of reconciliation so they could be restored back to God. And there's a distinct difference in motives. One is done in love, and the other is done in spite or bitterness. New City Church, may we be ministers of reconciliation. They're not afraid to, in love and in gentleness, show blind spots to our brothers and sisters in Christ, our family, but for their good. Because of sin and blind spots, if they're never addressed, transformation may not happen. And again, I'm not saying we go around heaping guilt on people. No, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. The motive of love and care is, the essential, is an essential ingredient to all of this. I mean, just notice how much and how often Paul affirmed his love for them and his pride for them, his joy in them as he talks about this. I mean, most of the overall theme of chapter 7 is about why he wrote the letter and the purpose of it that led them to repentance. But about two-thirds of this chapter is how much he loves them 
and is thankful for them, which is done in love and grace. I mean, just notice, just at the end of chapter 7, starting in verse 13, it says, Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we uh, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul affirms his love for Titus and his joy. Paul affirms how the Corinthian church encouraged Titus. Paul says he boasted to Titus about this church and says, you know what? I love y'all, but I think Titus may actually love you more. He says his affection is greater. And then he said he rejoices because of his confidence in them. I mean, without a doubt, we see here, love was Paul's motive. But he didn't complain about them. He loved them. I mean, love and care is essential Because, listen, any ounce of spite or anger or pride or bitterness will detract from the reconciling power of the gospel. And if we can't confront or enter into brokenness with the motive of love and restoration, it may be best to wait, to be patient, pray about it, and to seek wisdom. Because the end goal is always reconciliation. Because the gospel has the power to reconcile all things. I believe this from the bottom of my heart. And I get it. Oftentimes, uh, time and healing and space are needed, and that's good and wise. But yet still, the gospel reconciles all things, uh, but it reconciles us first back to God. Which, to close out our time today, uh, is why we love baptism so much here at New City Church. Because baptism is a declaration to the world of a life that is being transformed of a life that has been reconciled back to God. Whenever we baptize, it is a public declaration of an inward reality. It's saying uh, to the world through symbolism, like when we go down into the water, the old life is gone. It's been buried in Christ. That Their sins are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And then when we come out of the water, uh, they are symbolizing that they're a new life. They've been raised with Christ and have been made new. Uh, Listen, okay, baptism, it does not save anybody. Baptism does not have any power to get rid of sin. No, baptism, it's just a symbol. Just like my wedding ring, right right here. It, It symbolizes that I'm married. My ring, it doesn't make me married. It just shows the world that I'm a married man. Again, that's what baptism does. It shows the world that they have put their trust in Jesus and then he has made them new. And we baptize both Anna and Jim today. And I'm going to ask two questions. Saying, do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And then the second question, uh, will you follow him as Lord of your life? And they'll say yes, because I've already asked them these questions. (laughs) Uh, And then we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, today is an opportunity to celebrate what God has done in their life. You know, Anna, a few weeks ago, professed faith and praise, praise God, right? Praise God, yeah. Jim, several years, Jim, several years ago, he professed, he professed faith several years ago, but, but today for both of them, it's a celebration of what God has done in their life and what a joy it is to celebrate with them. And if you're here today, 
and you have professed faith, maybe recently or maybe today, and you are now a follower of Jesus, and you have not been baptized, after the service, uh, would you let us know? Would you come talk to me maybe? We'd love to talk to you and schedule your baptism in the weeks to come and celebrate with you as well. New City Church, being a minister of reconciliation, as we've talked about today, comes with both grief and joy. (laughs) But today, as we baptize both Anna and Jim, without a doubt, it's a joyous occasion. It is a celebration. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you have called us each to be ministers of reconciliation in so many different ways. And what a joy it is to be able to to see two people today uh, just show the world that what God is doing in them, to proclaim to the world that they are new uh, creations, that they have been made new, that the old life is gone and the new life is here. And so, Father, we're so thankful. Uh, Father, would would we celebrate today? all of what you're doing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.